0: The bank and tax fraud trial of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort is in its second day as prosecutors start bringing in a steady stream of witnesses. President Trump tried to distance himself from Manafort in tweets today as he has for months. Here he is speaking at the White House in June.
1: Like Manafort has nothing to do with our campaign. But I feel so, I tell you, I feel a little badly about it. They went back 12 years to get things that he did 12 years ago.
0: Joining me in our New York studios is former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig, he's special counsel at Lowenstein-Sandler and executive director of the Rutgers Institute on Secure Communities. Ellie, before we get to the trial itself, what's going on with the Manafort tweet storm references to Al Capone?
1: It's hard to follow. Uh, The president has been all over the map in his relationship with Paul Manafort. Of course, when Manafort was the campaign manager, they were close, and the president vouched for him and supported him. When Manafort got remanded uh, a month or so ago on witness tampering, the president said he got a raw deal. The last week or so, you saw the president doing what a lot of people do when someone's closing in on them or when someone's in trouble and say, Mm -hmm. "I I barely know this guy. He only worked for me for some short time. Who is he? But then today he seems to the president seems to have bounced back to the original position of, oh, this poor guy's getting getting such a raw deal. So uh, he's all over the map.
0: Uh, that that is true about about these tweets and other tweets today too. So now let's talk about the Manafort trial. Now we know the defense. It's blame it on the witness who's cooperating with the government. Manafort claims his right hand man, Rick Gates, did the crime. It's not a very original defense, but might it work?
1: It's quite standard. Uh, you know, blame the cooperator. It's really the everyone did it but me defense, which is hard to swallow when the but me is the boss, the top guy. And so I think I think they're going to have an evidence problem and they're going to have a common sense problem with the jury. Um, who's the guy who th- built the company? It was Manafort. Who's the guy who opened 30 bank accounts all around the world? You know, uh, who's the guy who had the relationships with the oligarchs? Who's the guy, most importantly, who made the most money? Who's wearing, you know, the in, now infamous ostrich jacket?
0: I, I the, the emphasis on that ostrich jacket is amazing. <laughs> I think a
1: lot of people Googled the term ostrich jacket yesterday for the first time. But uh, it's a hard sell. Um, and, and, you know, to, to say my number two did it all is going to be tough. And, and the evidence looks like it's just not going to support it. And obviously Gates will implicate... Uh, Manafort, but it sounds like others will too. Take take the first witness from yesterday, who seems like a pretty down-the-middle witness. Um, he said, he said the one quote that I took out of his testimony was, he said, Paul was in charge. Paul, meaning Manafort, was in charge. Um, and beyond that, you have financial documents showing the money uh, going to Manafort. You have emails. You know, one of the key allegations here is that Manafort knew he had these foreign bank accounts and lied lied on it in his tax returns. Um, there is information in the indictment saying... We have communications from his accountant asking, "Paul, do you have foreign bank accounts?" And Manafort said, "No." So I don't know how they get around that.
0: Now the judge is moving this very quickly. He today apparently the the prosecution had trouble getting the some. Uh, photographs in or having the jury look at them. He he said that he wants, he doesn't want the term oligarch used. So their witness ended up saying a very wealthy person or a person of wealth. They they seem to be taken aback a little bit, the prosecutors, by the speed at which the judge is moving it.
1: Yeah. so, So two things. Speed generally is the prosecutor's friend at a trial. You do not want a jury there through a trial that's getting dragged out over weeks, months. You start to lose them. You know, memory is just inherently not that long. So when I was prosecuting cases, I wanted the case to move. Now, this case is moving at lightning speed. And I think what we see the judge trying to do, by, by all uh, accounts. Judge Ellis is a very strong, hands-on judge. And I think that by barring certain terms that maybe would be inflammatory, oligarch, that kind of thing. Um, it's frustrating as a prosecutor, but I think what the judge is trying to do is keep the focus as narrowly as possible on the bank fraud, on the tax fraud. He doesn't want any, he wants as little as possible of the Russian piece, you know, elections, Trump. He wants to keep all of that stuff out so we have a clean, right down the middle trial.
0: He also, of course, the prosecutors want to paint this lifestyle that Paul Manafort had, which was really over the top. They spent about a million and a half dollars on clothes and art, antiques and the houses. But he he also said something about, um, you know, move this forward. He said, or when are you going to start telling us about? You know, I wonder how you're going to tie Manafort to these monies after they talked about all the money, right. money, money. But what's their point in talking about the monies more than just tying him to the monies? What's the kind of picture they want to paint of him for the jury? Yeah, so
1: there, there's two things. When you come across a piece of evidence like that as a prosecutor, that, you know, of course, the ostrich jacket, the $20,000 watch, your first reaction is you smile and you circle it and you make a little happy <laughs> face because you go, wow, the jury's going to hate this guy. It's obnoxious. It's offensive. They're all, you know, you assume your jurors are, are sort of working people. Um, but you, you can't overdo it because at a certain point it seems like you're just trying to slander the guy. There's no there's no crime to being rich. But I think there's a little more here to that argument. And I think what what the prosecution is trying to establish is This is a guy who cared a lot about his money, right? A guy who spends like that cares about his money. There's some people who are sloppy with money or don't really care, aren't focused on money. This guy was laser focused on money. And I think it makes it that much less likely that he had no idea what was going on. And his number two, Rick Gates, was sort of stealing it all. And he didn't follow the books that closely.
0: How much... with all the other evidence that prosecutors have, 500 pieces of evidence were listed, exhibits were listed. How much is going to depend on the credibility of Rick Gates? I mean, if the if the defense does a really good job on cross examination, how much will that hurt the case?
1: Yeah, Rick Gates is going to be the most important witness in this case. There's no question. There are some cases where you will rise or fall on your cooperator. If the cooperator is credited, you'll win, get a conviction. I'm talking from a prosecutor's perspective, mm-hmm. and if the jury discredits him, you'll have an acquittal. I actually don't think this is one of those cases. I think there's enough other evidence, enough documentary evidence, enough circumstantial evidence that even if the jury is a little iffy on Gates, um, they can still convict. Now, you want to make that argument in closing as a prosecutor, but it's tricky because you don't even want to raise the possibility that they wouldn't fully credit Mm -hmm. Gates. But, But I do think even if the jury doesn't completely buy Rick Gates' testimony, there's still room for conviction here.
0: Now, the prosecution, as we know, has to get 12 out of 12. The defense only has to get one to get a hung jury. What might the repercussions of a hung jury be for the Mueller investigation as a whole?
1: Yeah, a hung jury would be devastating. It really would. Um, I've had hung juries, right? Technically, a hung jury is a tie. And almost always you redo it. You retry the person, but it would hurt here. Um, You know, you can see what would happen if it's 11 to 1, 11 want to convict and one doesn't. You know the president and everyone else who believes this is a rigged witch hunt are going to declare victory and say shows what a what a sham the Mueller team is, and they couldn't even convict, and the jury rejected their theory. So, uh, a hung jury is is not going to be a tie. It's going to be a win for Manafort and, and Trump and a loss for Mueller.
0: We just have about 50 seconds here. Do you know the prosecutor? I, I know some of the prosecutors. I've seen some of them in action, mm-hmm. but I don't know these these prosecutors.
1: So, uh, I, don't, I know Greg Andres, who I think is the lead in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was doing organized crime cases in Brooklyn when I was doing them in Manhattan. Look, he's the best there is. Um, he's tenacious. He's extremely talented. He, he'd, he's on the short list of guys I'd ever want prosecuting me <laughs> if I did something wrong.
0: It's great to have you here. It's Always great to have you on. That's Ellie Honig of Lowenstein Sandler and Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute on Secure Communities. Andrew Wheeler has only been leading the EPA for three weeks, but in that time he's made it clear that he'll be adopting much of his predecessor Scott Pruitt's agenda, but not his headline-grabbing habits. During his first congressional testimony today, Wheeler said President Trump gave him three tasks when he was appointed acting administrator.
1: Clean up the air, clean up the water, and provide regulatory relief to help the economy thrive and create more jobs for American workers. I believe we can accomplish all three at the same time, in fact, we have already made progress on all three fronts in just the past few weeks.
0: Joining us is Jennifer Deloy, Bloomberg News Environment and Energy Regulation Reporter. Jennifer, you were at the hearings today. Did he explain how he's going to deregulate at the same time as cleaning up the air and water?
2: Well, he talked a lot about regulatory certainty, uh, the idea that you can process permits more quickly, um, and and give answers to the you know businesses that are and the developers that are seeking uh, permits uh, involving water or land. Uh, so that's really where I, I think the rubber meets the road, where you have this clash and and where he is hoping to bridge the divide.
1: Any big he- headlines from him on any important issues that you're following?
2: Absolutely. So what was really interesting today is, is of course, how heavily the hearing uh, focused on policy, a little bit of a, a change uh, from uh, hearings we saw with his predecessor, Scott Pruitt, that were dominated by concerns about ethics and spending. Uh, today, uh, Andrew Wheeler indicated that he wants to reach some kind of compromise with California over vehicle emission standards. Uh, the administration is on the verge of releasing its proposal uh, to uh, ease Obama-era standards that uh, aim to increase uh, fuel economy requirements and um, and uh, greenhouse gas emission requirements for cars uh, over the coming years. And, and they're going to freeze those in the proposal. Uh, the proposal also is going to take aim at California's unique ability to regulate emissions in its own turf and uh, and what Wheeler said today is he'd like to see a fifty-state solution, um, some kind of compromise that that California can be uh, on board with, and that wouldn't require uh, him to go after California's authority.
0: So, but Jen, in in the statement or the report that's going to be unveiled, is it going to still talk about trying to take back California's the special power it has over emissions? Right, our reporting
2: indicates that indeed this proposal tomorrow won't uh will still have that very strong language in in it um that it will uh assert that California's own emission rules are preempted, um that California shouldn't have a waiver allowing them to to uh regulate emissions uh in this special way and that it will of course take this harder approach to freezing the uh, Obama era standards. That said, Wheeler made uh took pains today to say this is just a proposal. And of course, it's a proposal that involves not just his agency, the EPA, but is also being written with the Department of Transportation, where you have some uh, political appointees that are pushing this harder stance. So that we're going to see these tensions, I think, play out over coming months. But he took pains today to stress that this is just an opening bid and his goal is a compromise.
1: Is it fair to say that uh, Wheeler is auditioning for the job full time? Is it his to lose?
2: Oh, absolutely! This is an audition, uh, an on-the-job, uh, an on-the-job ap- uh, audition, as it were. Uh, Senator Barroso, the chairman of the Environment and Public Works Committee, today said he'd like to see Wheeler get the job full time. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, we don't have any indications that the president is preparing to nominate him any time before uh, the November elections. And this issue will probably linger for a while. But no question, uh, everyone is watching his performance from the White House to the Senate.
0: Jen, you've written about how you know some people might read some of his actions as being backing off of Pruitt's agenda, but they would be wrong. Explain what his aim seems to be. Right. Uh, what we see
2: with Wheeler is really a continuation of Pruitt's agenda. He still aims to ease many of the same regulations that Pruitt targeted for revision or appeal. Uh, that includes Obama-era regulations governing uh, greenhouse gas emissions from oil wells and from power plants and, of course, the, the car proposal we just talked about. Uh, what What is different uh, is that even though the agenda is going to be continuing and, and it is clearly continuing uh, in similar fashion – Wheeler is taking a slower approach. He's a little bit more cautious. He might be a little less aggressive in leaning into some of these um, policy changes. Uh, some folks think that uh, will that he's more interested in doing a lot of the um, uh, dotting of I's and crossing of T's that's necessary to uh, ensure these rollbacks are supported and can withstand legal scrutiny. Uh, that's a question we'll see answered later on how well he does at that. Um, but certainly he's taking a slower and more cautious approach in enacting some of the same reforms.
1: Now, Wheeler is a former lobbyist, and he did get a a, a question about his ethics. What was that?
2: <laughs> right. At the very top of the hearing, he was asked about his willingness to recuse himself from uh, past clients. He's, he's indicated that he will not um, interact with or be involved in uh, decisions that directly involve past clients, including notably um, uh, the uh, coal miner, um, Bob Murray, the head of Murray Energy Corporation. Uh, but that really was uh, remarkably the only ethics question in this uh, this hearing where, uh, frankly, previous hearings involving Pruitt were dominated by um, inquiries about ethics.
0: So in general, Jen, about 30 seconds here, did it, see less, did it seem less confrontational than uh, the hearings with Pruitt?
2: Night and day, absolutely less confrontational. He was given a warm welcome, uh, relatively speaking, by both uh, Democrats and Republicans, including some of Pruitt's fiercest critics.
0: All right. Thanks so much for that report. That's Jennifer Deloy, Bloomberg News Environment and Energy Regulation Reporter. We'll have more on those Wheeler hearings throughout the day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.